0: This morning we continue our time in the Gospel of Mark. And I did not know this uh, before this week, but having studied this, this is one of my favorite passages. And you might ask me next week and say, hey Joel, is that still true? And next week I might say, actually, no, this week's passage is one of my favorite passages. But looking at uh, what Jesus does here, how he calls the disciples to himself and then how He sends them out in His name, there's some things that I think we are particularly wired for that as we hear today, we're going to man, be like, man, that's, that's good. There's also some things in here that are particularly hard. And I, I pray that even as we hear those things, we say, that's good. Like, like both the things that naturally we cling to and run to and we say yes, and the things that we're like, I don't know about that, that both... In faith and in belief, we would say, that's good. And so this morning, we're looking at uh, a particular time where Jesus has already called the disciples. If we remember back in Mark 3, He had called the disciples to Himself with the uh, identification that they would be sent out. But He hadn't sent them out yet. He had called them to Himself, and He's gone about His ministry, a ministry that, that is a proclamation of the kingdom. And so these disciples have gone with Jesus uh, all over Galilee and, and to, into some other areas, and they've watched what he's done. They've heard what he said, and they've seen the way that he has loved completely a, a, a humanity that's desperately in need of a Savior. And so the disciples have been with Jesus, which was his first call, come and be with me. But he's also preparing them to send them out. Now, this particular time of sending is uh, maybe on-the-job training, if that's how you want to look at it. For those of you who have served in the military, you know uh, what it's like to have on-the-job training. And for a lot of other occupations, you know, hey, often you would shadow somebody, you would watch what they do, and then there would come a point where you would be sent out to do that same thing on your own. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's, he's walked with the disciples. He's shown them what to do. But there's a key piece here. It's not just in your own ability you follow Jesus. Jesus says, I am giving you authority. The authority of my name. And so they're going to go and they're going to be sent in the name of Jesus. And that's really where we want to press in today. What does that mean? What does that look like? What are some things that we could take away from this particular sending and this particular commissioning, this trial run of, of sorts, that would apply to us today as the church, as people called to live on mission for Christ, for His namesake, that are sent in His name. And so we want to have eyes that are open today and ears that would hear. You see, Jesus in this passage is sending his disciples to at a particular time to a specific place and to a distinct people yet we see in it truth that applies today we see in it uh, relationship that that our relationship with Christ should mimic should be like and so we need to we need to come with ears like listening today God, what, what are you trying to tell me about the way that I'm living that needs to be changed, that needs to be conformed, that needs to look more like you in your ministry as you went and did all these the, the healing that you did, but also, and more importantly, the proclamation that you did of a kingdom that is better, of a kingdom that, that belongs to a good king who is perfect and righteous and true. And so this morning we're going to look at passage... And I pray that we would be in awe of it. And, we, and it would really get us excited. Like at the end where we say, go and be the church, you're already there. You're already chomping at the bit to go because we're sent. We are not a consuming people. We are a contributing people that will proclaim the goodness of our God as we partake in it. And so let's pray and ask God to do that in us today. God, You are so good and sweet. And we've already tasted that. We've tasted that in the midst of song and in the midst of confession, in the midst of hearing Your Word read to us. God, and the kids are hearing that same truth today. And I just thank You so much, Lord. That, you would, that in Your kindness, You would lead us to a place of repentance that we would turn from trying to do it ourselves and we would look to the King who has done it and we would say that He's done it for us. And now He's called us to do it with Him. And So Lord, I pray that that, that it, we would see it today. We would understand it. And by the power of Your Spirit, through the proclamation of Your Word, that You would conform us and transform us into disciples of Jesus. God, I thank You that You are doing that throughout the world today. Lord, I, I just thank You so much that there's going to be people that are here for the very first time today and their lives will be changed forever. God, You are good. And so we we stand and we proclaim that same good news that we would be changed forever. We pray these things with confidence in Your name. In the name of Jesus, Amen. Amen just looking at this passage there's a couple things we're going to see what we are called to do right what are the disciples called to do in this passage and then and then are those same things the things that we're called to do today and we're going to see that that what, how are we to do it like not just what but how and for what purpose and so as we press into this this morning kind of keep those questions in your mind what are we called to do how are we called to do it and what's the purpose of why we would do it? The first thing is that we are called to be with Jesus. As we see um, in verse 7, it says, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. He calls them, it's a summoning, right? Maybe they had gone home. Maybe they were, uh, there were times, I'm sure, where the disciples would go and take care of some things. And they wouldn't always be with him all the time. But Jesus calls the twelve to Him and summons them. And so this calling to Himself is what He does with us all the time. He calls us to Himself, and, and sometimes that's an uncomfortable place for us. Because we know, like we've confessed, that in our sin, we should not be in the presence of a holy God, and yet we remember that not only has He called us to Himself, but He's made a way for us to come. And so as He calls the disciples... That same reality is there, a a reality of being unworthy, a a reality of not having it all together, a reality of not being able to do what they know that at some point they're going to be sent to do. And I think sometimes we think, oh yeah, they've had all the training that they need and so they can go and do this. But as we're going to see in later chapters of Mark, they still don't have it right. They still don't know who Jesus is. They still argue over place and position. They haven't learned that it, what does it look like to be last so that you could be first. Peter, he, he flies off the handle a lot. Thank goodness, right? Because some of us, we fly off the handle too. And so, don't think that in this moment, the disciples have it all together, and so now Jesus can finally send them on mission. No, they don't have it together, but they are being sent in the name and in the power of the one who does and so we see that this gift that the disciples have been given that, that they've been called to him that he's seen they have heard his teaching they've seen his miracles they've experienced the depth of his love for them and for others mark 13:15 says and he went up on the mountain this is the initial calling he went up on the mountain and called to them called to him those whom he desired And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Very beginning, they knew, oh man, everything that we're watching him do, he's calling us to do that too. And so, while they might be in awe and wonder at what Jesus does, there's also probably a fear and an apprehension that, Man, He said that we're going to do those same things and I'm not prepared for that. And yet, Jesus calls them and He gives them everything that they need. So the gift that they have is that they've seen and experienced Jesus. Secondly, we see in in verse 7 that they're going to be sent. He's giving them authority. They're being sent in the name of Jesus. In His authority. This authority is, is this filling with Christ's indwelling Spirit for the purpose of this mission. This is for God's purposes, not for their purposes. And so, He is establishing that, that they are going for His mission, under His authority. They're authorized representatives in both word and deed. Listen, maybe um, as you think about word and deed, you immediately begin to think about, yeah, that's, that's the only way that I'm going to believe. That's the only way that I'm going to believe is that somebody's words match their deeds. And so, as the disciples, this, they're really starting to feel some weight here. Like, man, my, my deeds have to match my words. But, but remember that the proclamation that they're making, the calling that they're making is to repentance, not to perfection. And so they can model that same repentance for the people even as they proclaim that there's a need for repentance. They're sent with his power his power to cast out demons and unclean spirits, his power that heals the sick so that they would recover, so that they would be made whole. So that the things that have that have entered in because of sin and brokenness would be restored by the king who is coming to establish his kingdom they're sent to proclaim the salvation of our God. We, we don't see that explicitly in verse 7, but if you look at verse 12, it says, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. Listen, if we've learned anything over the last couple of weeks, as Jesus has done these miracles, every time that He has done these miracles, He has called by faith and belief these people that He is healing and restoring into relationship with Himself. You can't have one without the other. And even community group, we talked a little bit about this, like cause and effect. Is it faith that works the healing or is it healing that produces the faith? It doesn't matter. They're always in conjunction. They're always together. True faith and belief would be the only way that healing would happen. And then the healing that happens produces faith and belief and trust in a God who cares and loves and heals and saves. And so they're called to cast out demons in His name. They're called to heal the sick. They're called to proclaim, most importantly, the salvation of the God, whose name they are going in. Any healing that happens, happens in the name of Jesus. He's the only one who can heal. The disciples don't have this special gift now that that is theirs. They, They have been given a gift by Jesus, a power. From Jesus to heal and to save, they're sent with His authority and with His power. This proclamation that they're making—it's a like we talked about—a ministry of word and deed. It's authentic ministry. It's proclaimed and it's lived. In our humanity, we're quick to judge those who would uh, who would be hypocritical. And we're also like really scared of being called hypocrites. I don't know about you guys, but as a pastor, I'm really scared. Like I have a real uh, fear of being a hypocrite because I believe this so strongly and yet my life often looks like, how can you believe that and still act that way? But thankfully, like we talked about, there's a truth that justification has happened and there's a truth that sanctification is taking place in our lives and so we can honestly confess hypocrisy. We can say, listen, just because I am not where God is making me and taking me does not mean that His truth is not real. But it's a ministry of word and deed. And that's so key to why our preaching can't be a moralism. Because we're not right. We're not perfect. We're not getting it right. Our preaching needs to be... And, and listen, this proclaim word that's being used here, in the NIV, it, it, it's translated to preaching. So when you think, well, you're the preacher, Joel. No, we are all preachers of this gospel. We are all proclaimers of this gospel. And so the proclamation that we make then must point to the Saviour. It can't be, hey, you need to fix yourself. But how m- <laughs> Listen, This is going to get hard for a second. How many times do we tell our children or our wives or those that we love, hey, you just need to do this better. You need to get right. You need to fix this. Instead of holding out, listen, you're broken. It's evident right now. <laughs> and yet, we have a Savior who is restoring the broken, who's healing, who's making whole, and so we believe that and trust that, and so I have to believe that for myself, and I I believe it for you too, so can we both come in a place of repentance believing that that's true? And so that's the proclamation that these disciples would make. They're declaring a gospel of repentance. A gospel that would say, hey, You've tried to be your own king and you need a savior and a king who is better. And so even as they preach this savior, they actively trust in the savior that they're proclaiming. That's that's definitely for us today. Just like these disciples that are being sent on this mission, that's for us today. So that's what they're called to do. The second question that we talked about in the beginning is, is how are they to do it? And I think that there's some, some beautiful truth here that we, we get to see as these disciples go out. And then we get to apply it as we go and be the church together. Verse 8, it says, He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. As I first read that, I think about like how, how are they being sent? And the first how is actually in verse 7, because he sends them out two by two. And I think that's key for us. We are not sent as lone rangers. We are not sent by ourselves to figure it out. But we are sent together as the church, two by two. So not only are we given the gift of His Word and the gift of His Spirit, but we're given the gift of community. Right? The gift of each other, to do this together. And there's a lot of reasons that you would point to that says, why would He send them two by two? I think He sends them for camaraderie. Just the joy of the people together. Brotherhood, friendship. He also sends them so that they can learn how to work out their differences. Listen, if there's only one of you, you're never going to have any arguments. (laughs) If there's only one of you, you're always going to do it your way. But as soon as we add another person, now we've got to learn how in humility to live in this unity that Christ has purchased for us. To walk in that even as we do these incredible things where God is moving and He is shaping and He's restoring and saving, we are working together and realizing that that looks like a dying daily of my wants and my desires for the King who has perfect wants and desires. And trusting each other. Learning what that looks like. It's fellowship that they have. So camaraderie, Fellowship, unity, you could even say unity, hardship, like the, the, the hard part of being in relationship with somebody that's a sinner just like you. And then finally, there's this, there's this piece of the Mosaic Law that I think we, we look at. And as Jesus sends the disciples out, He's sending them to a Jewish community. Okay? They're going to the Jews who would have a knowledge of a Savior who is coming, and they would be preaching a gospel of repentance in the, in the Messiah because he's here. He has come, His kingdom is at hand. repent and believe. But for that testimony, according to Mosaic law, the testimony the, the, the truth of a testimony is established by the mouth of two witnesses, okay? So the final piece is that, hey, this testimony that they're giving is witnessed by somebody else. And so that as they stand in front of these communities, they declare the goodness of God, that He's come in the form of Jesus, and there's two people testifying to that truth. How are they sent? They're sent first and foremost two by two. The second way that they're sent is dependent. This is where it's going to get really uncomfortable. Okay? Okay. They're sent dependent. He says, take nothing in verse 8. He says, take nothing. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, no extra tunic. Listen, for us, there's a little bit of, of time and space translation that needs to happen because we don't necessarily uh, wear two tunics. We don't necessarily have money in our belt, but we often will have a a wallet and access to money. We will have an iPhone that has Apple Wallet so that we can get there. And that's what we fall back on. That's often what we actually depend on. And I'm not... I think there's an argument here that says, well, but but, I mean, they could have. Or, or maybe they didn't have it and so they couldn't. No, I think they probably had money because otherwise Jesus wouldn't say, don't take it. And so the reality is that He's challenging them that on mission in life, you will depend on me and me alone. Even as I give these good gifts and these good things to you. And this idea of dependence is not a new thing that Jesus is teaching, Right? He's not creating this idea and it's different from the God who has always been. No, the Israelites know that since the beginning, God has called them to trust, to believe, to depend on Him and Him alone. You look at the story of the Exodus. And in the Exodus, they're called to to be ready to travel because God's coming and He's going to bring a wrath. In the final... uh, of the plagues, when He comes and He kills the firstborn, He tells the people, be ready to go. Don't bring anything extra. You're going to depend on Me and I'm going to lead you out of this place into the promised land. Throughout all of Scripture, you'll see stories where God chooses to show His faithfulness to a dependent people by stripping them of the other things that they could depend on. And he's doing that here with the disciples where they have nothing. Now, if you read this in another, um, in one of the other Gospels, it says that he tells them not even to take a staff, but the, the thought there is that there's actually two different kinds of staffs that the shepherds would have. One would be a crook that's more of a leading and, and actually used often as a walking stick. And one's a rod, right? One's a rod that would defend themselves where they would fight off beasts. And that's the one he's saying, hey, don't, You don't even take that. You depend on me for your provision, for your defense. You trust me in all these things. This is God's design for humanity, that we would trust Him. It's also where we fail. The Garden of Eden, the very beginning, God said to trust me. I only have two things that I'm telling you, two laws that I'm giving you, trust me that they're good, and we did not trust Him. And we failed, and we entered into sin, and sin entered into the world and into humanity. So it's been continuous since the very beginning that God has called us to depend on Him and Him alone. What we find out at the end of this story is that the God who promised was faithful. In Luke's account of the gospel, in Luke twenty-two thirty-five, 35, he says, this is Jesus talking to the disciples and he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And, and they said, nothing. That's the proclamation that they give at the end. We lacked nothing. Why did they lack nothing? How was, how was this provided for them? And you see that in verse 10 of our text. It says, and he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. Seems kind of crazy. Yeah, obviously. Like, (laughs) you're there until you leave there. But what Jesus is telling them, listen, when you go into a place where there's belief, where there's reception, where they would welcome you with hospitality, you stay there. And I don't care if somebody else offers you a better hospitality. You stay there and you preach that gospel. You proclaim it to everyone. I think that's a challenge for us today because we always see, well, there's a better somewhere else. I'll just bring it home. Like when I think about this and gathering in this pavilion and I'm thinking, man, this is sweet and beautiful. And then I know that there might be a possibility that we go somewhere else one day. I'm just wrestling with some of this. Like God, are you just saying that we're supposed to be here? be dependent upon you in this place? I know the answer today, yes. (laughs) Yes. And so we rejoice in what we have. We're grateful that God has provided in this place. Because see, the third way that we go, we go two by two as a church, we go depending and we go grateful. Listen, we can always look towards that next thing. The better home, the better place, the better family, the better kids, the better job, whatever it is, and we lose sight of what God has given us today, that in this house where He has told us to be, we're going to stay here, and we're going to be grateful for what God's provided. Yes. That's, that's a people that when you see them, you're going to be like, man, I want that. Look at them. They don't have anything. And yet they have everything. And you look at the gospel at the book of Acts. And you see that church, and it's the same thing. Whatever they had, they shared together, and they didn't feel like they needed to hoard it and have have stuff in their in their money belt or food in their knapsack. They they trusted that God would provide, and that was the beauty of the people immediately coming out of the Exodus is that they rejoiced that God would provide manna, that God would provide the quail for them. But one day, they said, I, this "Is it?" it's better what, what happened to the other thing that we're supposed to be getting this isn't good enough anymore and yet it was everything that they needed and it was what God was giving them that day so that's a challenge for us this morning like think about what am I what am I not content with that, that God has given me that's this beautiful thing but I want something else because as soon as we begin to want this other thing we're not grateful for the thing that we have And that's what I believe defines the people of God, is a a gratitude that then leads to generosity, right? We talk about that sometimes, like the the, the things that we have, what does it look like for the people of God to be the church? We're generous because we know that those things aren't ours anyways. They were given to us. I think there's the reality of... The fact that Jesus's provision for his disciples on this ministry happened through other people—it's—it's it's very mundane. It's very ordinary. Unlike in the wilderness, there's no manna falling from heaven. There's no quail that they need. There's there's no supernatural provision. It's a daily provision. Through his people. And we always think that, oh, there should be something bigger. But the reality is, we look at each other and we're like, man, but we have something bigger. We have each other. We have the, the church that God is building to provide for every need that we have. And so we have an attitude of gratitude. And I know that sounds cheesy. I get it. But it's real. I mean, that's what we need. And so finally, what is the mission? How are they supposed to go on that mission? What is the result of that mission? What, what is, what's going to happen? Well, first and foremost, we're going to see that the thing that's going to happen is there's a possibility of rejection. Verse 11 says, And if any place will not receive you, And they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Often we think that because we have this beautiful message that we've partaken of, that we've experienced this gospel transformation, this change, that everybody's going to hear it and they're going to be like, Yes! But that's just not true. There will be people that will not hear it, that will not listen, that will not receive it. And so, you will be rejected, but it won't be you that's being rejected. It is the name that you are coming in. Remember, they are sent with the authority of Jesus, with the power of Jesus. So when they are rejected, it is not them, it's Jesus that's being rejected. Verse 11 says... Shake off the dust. What does that mean? That's that's kind of a crazy thing. Well, in Acts 13, 48 through 52, we have a little bit more context. Paul and Barnabas are preaching to the Gentiles in Acts 13, 48. And it says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the, the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as appointed to eternal life Believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Listen, if that's not, not receiving and not hearing. I don't know what is, but but they are they're rejecting this truth that Paul and Barnabas are bringing to the Gentiles and to the Jews alike. And it says, But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Listen, the rejection that they experienced, they knew it was a rejection of Jesus. It's it's out of their power to get people to believe. And so instead, there's a judgment against them. We think, often that there's, uh, there's maybe a middle road. There's some good people that maybe if they work hard enough, they, they, can't, they can't go to hell. But Jesus says that there's belief and there's unbelief. There's receiving and there's not receiving. Listen, that's hard. That's hard for us. But imagine how hard, if it's hard for us, imagine how hard it is for the loving God who created them and made them in His image. But if there's no faith, there's no belief. And if there's unbelief, then there's only judgment. Because everyone will receive an eternal reward. Everyone. And for those who believe and repent and trust in Jesus, the eternal reward is life. And for those who do not, for those who reject, the eternal reward is death and hell Jesus is saying, listen, if there's not faith in that household that you go to and that you walk away from, shake off the dust. Because there's nothing good in there if there's not faith. I don't care what they have. Nothing that you could take from there would be profitable. So shake off even the dust. In the uh, other account, or actually in this account, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. This testimony against them is that there's no middle ground. There's only belief and unbelief. Everlasting. Listen, the, the reward of unbelief is as eternal as the reward of belief. It's an everlasting separation from the God you were created to be with. This is not fun to preach. It's not going to be fun for you to preach it in your school, at your work, it's going to be hard. But it does not negate the truth of it. And so there has to be a proclamation of this truth. Otherwise, we are not loving. And that's hard because really, as soon as you make this proclamation, people are going to say, that's unloving. You don't love people. Oh, the, way, the reason that I tell you this is because I love you. Jesus describes what this torment, this separation looks like in Mark 9 48. He says, The, the torment of hell, where, there, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's painful. It's an awful reality that goes along with unbelief. There's a weeping and a gnashing of teeth. Listen, it's it's nothing we want to experience. It's nothing we want anyone to experience. And so we need to go with the proclamation of truth. Declaring that this kingdom... The kingdom that Jesus has said is at hand. The kingdom of repentance is here. This is the good news of the kingdom. Verse 12 says they proclaimed that people should repent. The greatest testimony was not what they did, but what and who they proclaimed Jesus. You see, they're proclaiming that the king has come and he's going to judge. And for some of us, we're hearing that and we're hearing you don't have to be your own king and that's good news and you're clinging to it and you're like, because I'm screwing everything up. I'm glad I'm not the king because everything I touch just is destroyed. For some of us today, it's the best news that we can hear because we've lost all control of our lives and it's a wreck. We need this powerful king This king who speaks order into chaos. To speak order into our chaos. To reign over us. And there's also a call to turn away from sin. For many of us, this is the news we least want to hear. But most need to hear. We hear that that we cannot be our own king. And we rebel against it and we hate it. Because I want to be my own king. And so we're at war with it. But whether you're the one who sees this as good news today and and just rejoices that I don't have to be my own king or you're the one who's rebelling and arguing and fighting against that, both need to hear this truth. Both of us need to hear it and recognize that it's good. That there is a king who came in a way that we, we would never imagine and who established a kingdom that we would never think of. There's a king in this promised kingdom and it's not us. It is Jesus. You see, attempting to be king is what got us into this mess in the first place. Attempting to be king is, is the rebellion that caused sin. And yet this good king knew that there was nothing that we could do about that sin and so what did he do? He humbled himself and he came to In the form of man, and He walked perfect righteousness, perfect obedience, ongoing perfect obedience to the Father. For who? For Himself? No, He was already doing that. In Heaven, seated at the right hand of God. Perfectly obedient to the Father. No, He did it for us. He came and lived as a human so that He could pay the penalty that we could not pay. His death on the cross was our payment. His life, righteous, perfect obedience, is what we have now if we are in Christ. It is for us. You see, we were not created to be our own kings, but to serve the King. I love Paul. He has this beautiful idea of what does that look like. And in 2 Corinthians 5.20, he says, "...therefore we are ambassadors for Christ." God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Repentance is both word and deed. It's not just a proclamation of, I'm going I'm to swear to that King. I'm going to follow Him. But it's, it's a walking in that way. It's a proclamation, a swearing of fealty to King Jesus, pledging our life to it, But it's also a walking in His ways. As we think about today, football season started. Right, We're all pledging to something. We'll wear their colors. I'll wear some turquoise and orange because I'm a Dolphins fan. Maybe one day. But the reality is that as an ambassador of Christ, I should be wearing His colors. I should be wearing the fruit of His Spirit. Walking in those things. So that people would know that's where His fealty lies. That's where His allegiance lies. I should be walking as the the disciples are walking, as ministers of this gospel. We love Him by obeying His commands. You see, we get caught up and we see the miracles of casting out demons. And we see the miracles of healing the sick. But the greatest miracle is that people would believe. That those people would see those miraculous signs and that they would believe that this Jesus is real. That the kingdom has come. That He's done everything needed to establish it. And we would walk in it. That's the greatest thing that we see in this passage. They went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Listen, that means that there was faith evident there. The disciples come back and they tell Jesus, Jesus says, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. We lack nothing. We had you. We saw what you did. And it was beautiful. All of this is for the glory of God. It's not about us as disciples. It's about the name that we're sent with. The name of Jesus that every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that He is Lord of all. Whether we believe in this life or not, there will be come a day where every tongue will confess and then you will receive your reward for belief or unbelief. Pray. I call you, I urge you, today believe. Believe this is true. And then let that belief motivate you to tell others about it. Motivate you to parent differently, motivate you to be a, a different neighbor, motivate you to be a different coworker for the glory of God, for the the sake of His name, the name of Jesus. Back to Acts 13.48, it says that when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the Word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Amen? That's what we call each other to today. God, would You, by Your grace and for Your glory, stir belief and trust and faith in our hearts we thank you that you're doing that we thank you that our confession is an honest one Lord that we would long to see you made much of in our lives continue to change us and transform us for your glory God change those that we know God would you stir in them belief for eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.